Alrighty. Okay. Second Corinthians chapter five. We'll see how far we get through this. The general consensus I heard from a couple weeks ago was that we, it'd be better for us to go slower and not finish the book than to rush through just to say we finished the book. So mm. we're already the way it's going to time out. We're probably going to be at least one chapter short. So who knows? We, we'll see what happens um, depending on how things go. Anyways, Second Corinthians five one. Um, Jules, are you doing the thing? Okay, for we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. So, he's contrasting here right off the bat, uh, the, the difference between life on this earth and life in um, not our final destination in heaven, but what we often call the intermediate state, which is where do our souls go right now when we die? And uh, this is a concept we need to keep in mind that we really easily confuse. So uh, we, we use this general term heaven, but we really need to be thinking in two categories of the heaven we immediately pass into before our bodies are resurrected. Um, and that space is going to be different than where we spend eternity, which is after our bodies are resurrected in the new heavens and new earth. So just helpful categories to keep in mind. And that's kind of going to be relevant to how Paul speaks here. So he contrasts, he says, we have an earthly tent. So kind of these bodies that in a sense house our souls, though that's not um, the best way to think of it. Um, and we often have a, a holdover from... Uh, Platonic thinking from how Plato taught that spiritual and soul is better and higher than body. And even though it's true that we are made up of body and soul, we don't want to think of our soul as like our true self and the body is just like a shell that houses it. We're integrated persons. We're whole people. And so it's just important to keep that in mind that we're ideally meant to be whole people, body and soul together in one person. Uh, And this is an earthly tent. But if it's destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens. And so you can kind of contrast, if you think of a tent, it's generally for nomadic peoples, right? They travel around, they uproot, they move along. It's, it's a non-permanent form of dwelling. So our body is kind of show us this non-permanence as knees sprain and um, our bodies are frail. Uh, this It's like an earthly tent. But what we have eternally is a building from God. So there's a permanence, a a homeness to this. And it's not made with hands. Uh, And it says that in this tent we groan. um, And we groan in many different ways. um, Physically, emotionally, just the pain of death in this world. Desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. It's almost like we wear our home. We wear that final home in a sense. Um, since Paul says, like, we live in an earthly tent, um, isn't that a good reason to think that we are just souls that live in a body? And I thought the, like, shorter catechism said, says that we are souls that live in a body. I can't think of where it says that. If you, I'll have to look at it. Does anyone else in shorter catechism speak to that? Like, it's, it, it's well agreed in the Reformed tradition that we are body and soul together, but um, the fact of the resurrection gives an honor and dignity to the body that is going to be permanent, and 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how our bodies will be raised incorruptible, imperishable. 
um, which is our final state. And so when the Bible speaks usually of the intermediate state of that time when our soul is separate from our body, although it says, and we're going to see here that it's better than what we're at now because we'll be with the Lord in holiness, it's not as good as it could be because the soul without the body lacks the body's capability of sense and the sort of joy we can experience through our senses. So although our, our soul can have spiritual delights, our body can't, our bodies actually will add something to our souls eternally and add levels of joy and pleasure that we can't experience just as souls. Um, but I, I wouldn't take that tent language to be like, oh, well, the body is just like a housing vessel. I think it's more talking to our temporariness in the bodies of death, which are not how God designed our bodies to be. He wanted bodies to live forever, and it's the fact of death that causes this to be a more temporal sort of housing for now. Um, we desire to put on a heavenly dwelling, which is true. And so we'll see this contrast a little later, the difference between death and life. And we can almost think of that as mortality versus immortality, as this contrast of death and life. And what's working in our bodies now is death. Our physical bodies are slowly dying, but we also live in a culture of spiritual death, um, which is prefiguring the eternal death. And we groan because we still carry a body of flesh that the New Testament often speaks about, the death that's still in our members and sin and all those things. And it's a burden to us. Um, but here's another contrast. It's like someone might object and say, Yes, you get to put off this body of death, but you're going to be just like a naked soul. You're going to be unclothed. Um, and he's saying, perhaps in a sense that's true, you're going to lose the housing of the soul, but there is a clothing, even for our soul in heaven, a spiritual glory, a holiness. Uh, we have the righteousness of Christ. Um, so even the existence of our soul will be superior in heaven to what our bodies are at now. Yeah. And doesn't Revelation speak of the souls clothed in white. They're given white mm -hmm. robes. So yep. there, is, there is a clothing, even now. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, I think that's probably metaphorical in a sense. So I think we see, in heaven we see Revelation, we see physical speaking of bodies and those beheaded for Christ. Um, but we know that people are not going to have physical bodies in heaven right now. Right. That's a way we know So I think some of that language is figurative, but we are definitely going to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. It just shows God. that we're not... Not naked. Yes, exactly. A, a beautiful, glorious, spiritual existence. And the way I picture it here is that this mortality is swallowed up by life. And so this is a question people kind of debate. We will say, like, how should we speak of the idea of immortality? Because you would see immortality as a concept applies truly only to God. And some would say, well, we have immortality now because our souls are never going to end but then that would apply to believers too. So the, the whole language does get a little tricky conceptually, and there's not really an easy answer. But I think one way we can think of it here is that eternal life is in contrast to having um, still death. So even though we'll exist forever, we are having we have an immortal or a mortality of deathness still in our flesh. We still are affected by death and live in death to some extent. And in that sense, we're not immortal yet. Does that make sense at all? Or is that just confusing? If it's confusing, that's fine. Let's keep going. Um, the, the one who has... Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, the one who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit 
as a down payment. And so I think this gives us a little clue as to what this heavenly clothing for our soul is going to be. I think the hint we have is that the down payment of it is the spirit that we have now. So we do have um, the spirit within us, and that's a picture of what our greater, more spiritual existence will be in heaven. And it's a down payment, so it's like it's just a deposit. So the change in our souls we get when God gives us his Holy Spirit is, seems to be some sort of prefiguring of what our spiritual existence will be in heaven when the down payment becomes the full sum. And we don't really know what that is. Like, we can't actually describe it perfectly. Um, the language that we have in the Bible, because it's beyond our understanding, is usually like, there's no crying, pain, tears. It's going to be spiritual, incorruptible. But the actual essence of it, we don't really know. Because it's mysterious to us. We have a hard time thinking in non-physical categories. Um, the Spirit's a down payment. And um, we've been prepared for the purpose... By God, that is, he's fit us for eternal life. And so, verse 6, we're always confident. Uh, Paul's saying, like, we, we really can't lose. If the worst thing that we think happens to us, we die or are killed for Christ, happens, we just go to be with the Lord. How could we be anything but confident? We know that we're at home in our body, in this earthly tent. We're away from the Lord. And this isn't saying fully separate, because we know as Christ promises in Matthew 28, I'm with you always so God is always with us, but this is an awareness from the Lord. Um, physically is not the right word, but uh, we're away from the Lord in that our sight of the Lord right now is by faith. And one day it's going to be sight. So we're away, but still connected by faith. Um, but we long for the day when we'll actually have sight. And that's what he says. We walk by faith, not by sight. And I think sometimes we forget this fact that we are still just walking by faith. And I don't know if you guys have this feeling sometimes. It's like, I just wish God was like more real to me. And I just wish I could have like some experience of his presence that was just so clear and so powerful and so undeniable that was just like, I just knew God was right here. Um, and I think we kind of forget sometimes that we're actually, we are walking by faith. And if you remember what Jesus said to Thomas when he said, you know, he came to believe when Christ convinced him of the wounds that he was truly risen, um, he was like, you see, and that's blessed, but blessed is the one who does not, has not seen and yet believes. And so I think just to remind us that when we feel like God is not as real to us as we'd like him to be, to remember that we are walking by faith and God's blessing for those who put their hope in him when we don't see him clearly. We don't see God by sight yet. We apprehend God with the hand of faith coming from our heart. And um, so in a sense to not be discouraged when sometimes God feels distant from us, um, although it's something to pursue intimacy and union with God, um, just remembering this is still the season of faith and we await that day when faith turns to sight. And there's a beauty to it in the sense of in heaven, we will not have to exercise faith anymore. And so really our life is the opportunity we have to glorify Christ by putting faith in him. And so we can think of it as actually a unique opportunity that every time we have to exercise faith, when we doubt God, when we don't see him clearly, God really does receive an honor from that. Which I think is encouraging to us. Uh, verse 8, in fact, we're confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So even though the, body, the soul will be unclothed right away when we die, he says it is still better 
because we're going to be with the Lord. And this is um, the concept of heaven. It doesn't get described in that detail and clear of language to us. But the constant refrain is that heaven is where God is. Heaven is where the Lord is. And so the joy of going to heaven is the joy of going to be with the Lord. And it's interesting if you look at this as just a theme throughout all of scripture. Um, And this is one thing that I think we've really confused in sort of our Western Christianity for a long time, is in thinking that when we think of the separation between God and man, the creator, the creature, this distance between God and us, that the goal in scripture is to take us to God, for us to leave this earth and go to where God is, to where heaven is. That, like, that would be the ideal. We escape this corrupt existence and go up to God. But the picture in scripture always is that God's desire is to come down to us. And from the very beginning of creation, we see it in the garden. God was going to dwell with Adam and Eve, walking in the cool of day, God's presence. But then when that's lost through sin, um, it's almost as if like God is ejected from, we've ejected God from the earth And the picture throughout all the Old Testament is how is God's presence with us going to be restored? So whether it's in the sacrifices and the picture of the tabernacle is, wow, God, Jehovah, the true God is present among us. They set up the tabernacle in the middle of the camp with all the 12 tribes around it in a circle. The picture of God's presence and then more permanently in the temple. The picture is always, we want God dwelling in our midst and that promise Throughout all the prophets, he says, I will be their God. They will be my people. And the ultimate picture in Revelation 21 is that heaven, the new Jerusalem, descends to the earth. Not that the earth goes up to heaven, but heaven comes down to earth. And God fills all in all. And it's truly fulfilled then that he's our people. Um, we are his people. He is our God. His presence is always with us, uninterrupted. The light of the Lamb is everything. So as we think of this greatness of going to be with the Lord, the ultimate is that God's going to come to be with us. And so I think we need to flip our thinking on that, that um, even as there's a sense in which we can think, oh, I just love to leave to be with the Lord. What's better is to say, if God could come down to me. And I think of that verse at the beginning of Isaiah, I think it's 64. It says, God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Um, Just we want to see heaven open up that God would come down to meet us. Um, that we would truly experience the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, whether home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Um, I preached on that in December. I don't want to do it, go into it too much, but um, whether we're home or away, like in whatever the case may be, our only goal always is to please God and to live in a way that brings a smile to his face. That's our great goal, knowing that we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Um, We often forget this too, that heavenly rewards are a real thing. Um, Heavenly rewards are something that scripture very clearly teaches. The exact nature of them, we don't really know. Um, The exact distribution, we're not sure, but God tells us throughout the New Testament that there is going to be a reward for those who have lived for God and lived in a way to please him. And the reward for all believers is not going to be the same. Um, There's pictures of having authority over one city or ten cities. Um, And I don't think, again, we can fully comprehend what this looks like. One way I've heard it described, which makes sense to me, but I'm not sure you can 100% defend biblically, was this person kind of said, like, everyone's joy is going to be overflowing in heaven. So it's like, if you imagine a cup overflowing with water, but 
we'll have different sized cups. So it's like, although everyone will be as joyful and overflowing as they possibly could be, some will have a greater capacity to know and experience God um, such that like you can't envy them because you're overflowing. You can't imagine it being any better, but different sized capacities. So I like that idea. I don't know if I can defend it, but I'll put it out there. Yeah. And I've heard that that size cup is what we develop here on earth. We, we grow in our capacity to enjoy the Lord here mm. on earth in this life. Mm. And then that's carried into heaven. I don't know if mm. that's biblical either. It's a sense in which our lives here will carry over into eternity in a sense. I don't know exactly what, but our works come with us, Scripture says, and we present them, and it talks about the nations even bringing their treasures to the new Jerusalem. Um, and we don't know all that, what that means, but there's, I think there's more continuity between now and eternity than we often think there is. Um, that would, yeah, that would be my general inclination, but I don't know. These but if, you don't, if you don't enjoy the fellowship of the Lord here, you know, you do it, but you don't enjoy it. You right. don't grow in enjoying it. Then you will have a lesser capacity to enjoy him in heaven. Right, and it's, even if we think of what's, the, what's an evidence of someone who truly has a heart converted to the Lord, it's going to be you have some love for Christ, some enjoyment right, of his right, presence. And right. John Piper writes about this really well in the book God is the Gospel. I highly recommend, amazing book. Changed my life when I was like 19 when I read it. The glory of heaven is that God is there. And a lot of people, they want to go to heaven and they want everything there except for God in this world. People want all their pleasures and joys, but... The idea of God being there, adding to that, is like meaningless to them. And that's just something significant for us to think about. I have a question. Yes. Are you incentivized by the idea of rewards? Personally, not really. <laughs> um, and I think we, we ought to be. So it makes me wonder just how, I don't know how right or wrong or thinking really is about these things. Um, well, I asked the question because my father always said it was just a bad idea. Like, to be incentivized by rewards? Yeah, so it's like, um, Kevin DeYoung has a book called Hole in Our Holiness, which is really good. And he actually says, he lists, I forget how many, it's something like 30 motivations to obedience that the New Testament provides for believers. So, like, gratitude to the Lord, love for Christ, desire to avoid hell, desire for heaven, heavenly rewards. And so I'd say, like, if heavenly rewards is like 1 of the motivation, that's probably right. So. <laughs> don't, don't you think as, as you become more mature, the reasoning behind it changes around? So at the beginning in a relationship with somebody, you probably do something to what you get. Mm. Like even, even when you first start dating, you're doing to impress. But as you grow deeper and deeper and deeper in a relationship, you're doing it out of love, not because mm. of have to or checklist mm-hmm. off. Or, and so it becomes less tangible and more intangible. And I think maybe in our relationship with the Lord, we, we the more we get to know who He is, we're doing it less for a reward and more to honor and glorify Him. Mm-hmm. It's just a heart response that yep. comes natural because of the situation you've grown into. And I think that parallels our journey of sanctification. Mm-hmm. But if the reward is more of God, then it would be a, a good thing to desire. 
then it would be a wonderful yeah. aspiration to have, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm, I would think so. I and mean, I think this makes sense. You know, if you're thinking in terms of reward, more of God, then I think then it's time for you to get on the wagon. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. I wonder, like, <laughs> like part of me wonders, like, maybe the reward is just the fruit of our lives on this earth, and the reward is that we get to see the evidence of what God did in us for all eternity. Like Christ says, "I and the children, God is with me." And one of the pictures we have of this in First Corinthians three is that the house you've built of your life either stands or crumbles when it goes through God's fire. So, if like my actually comes into heaven, like. My life made an eternal difference. There's like, I built with jewels in my life. Like that would be an amazing, wonderful cause for joy on top of just the joy of getting to be with the Lord. So maybe the reward is simply that some people, they get the Lord and that's enough and amazing. But some people get the Lord plus like a host of spiritual children with them. Maybe that's just the reward. I don't know. Well, doesn't Paul state that a little bit later in the chapter you were just quoting that his what is his joy that the people that right. come to believe? Right. He says, like, you're my crown, right. as it were. So yeah. That is part of the rewards. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'd be inclined to lean that way, that the reward is not going to be some weird ethereal thing we can't expect, but probably largely the fruit. And, like, if we have the parable of the talents, they're like, I made you ten talents. So he's like, you get ten cities. Like, there seems to be some continuity between the work now and the work then. But I don't know, these future things are very beyond our comprehension in a lot of ways. It'll be a joy and a reward, but I don't think it's going to be compared to someone else's. You know, like you were talking about the cups. Yeah, like there's no, not going to be any envy right. or jealousy. Yeah. So. If you let me stress this just a little bit, I, I know you want, don't want to push it, but the text seems to push it. It says, so that each may be repaid. I want to think about that a little bit. Mm. I don't want to just give, give in to not knowing mm. at all. But at least the very uh, thought is that there is an incentive, there is a challenge here. Right. Uh, so so I, I'm not suggesting that we can know right. exactly what it is, but I am suggesting that we ought to be a bit motivated by mm. this. Huh? That's all. Yeah. It, it does seem like that the reward isn't just on this side of eternity, but maybe at the judgment day, so it's not just what we get, what knowledge we can have or what rewards we can have knowing Christ now, but maybe something at the second coming. Yeah, because I think there's this there's an idea of repayment here, which implies like you sacrificed something, you paid something for me, you're going to get that back, you know, uh, pressed down, shaken over, whatever. Um, so maybe this thing like, you know, the encouragement is maybe our sacrifices aren't in vain, and we're going to far receive more from the Lord in eternity for any sacrifice we might make now. No, it's I grace. understand it's, it's grace upon grace. So yeah. I really get that. Yeah, yeah, the rewards are by because grace. Because no matter what we do, yeah. God doesn't owe us anything. Yeah, but he delights to he give us he out does. of his grace. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I think if anyone's really interested in this topic, I haven't actually read it, but knowing the series and the author... Um, there's a little booklet, or a mini book, maybe 70, 80 pages, called um, A Christian Pocket Guide to Good Works and Good Rewards, written by my old pastor, Mark Jones, back in Vancouver, who's just a very smart guy and writes very clearly and concisely, and this is a topic he really knows a lot about. So that would be, I think, a resource for further engagement with the subject. We need a church library. That's a good idea, actually. A church library. I like it. Okay, uh, let's move on. Verse 11. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, you know... 
We know now that we're all going to have to give an account for our lives to him. We try to persuade people, to persuade people to believe and follow God. And I uh, just want to quickly point out that often in Reformed circles, people are against this idea of trying to persuade. Because we know ultimately it's the Spirit's work. It's like, well, you know, just present the gospel and just leave it out there. And whatever happens, happens. But he says, we try to persuade people. And this is again and again in the book of Acts. It says Paul reasoned with them and he sought to persuade Jews and Greeks. So let's not be afraid of engaging in intellectual discussion with people. What we are is plain to God and I hope is also plain to your consciences. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply to those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. This is hearkening back to some of the things we saw in the other chapters. Paul's opponents um, judging his motives, saying, just questioning why he's doing what he is. And so he's saying, like, as we try to persuade people and as we've been preaching to you, what we are is plain to God. Like, we're seeking to please God. It's, I hope it's plain to your consciences. We want to do everything for your good. Um, and this isn't to build ourselves up, but we do want you to be proud of us for our sacrifices we're making for God and for you guys um, so that you can reply to these people that just think it's about your outward like status and appearance and lack of suffering that legitimizes your ministry rather than the heart. He's saying, like, our heart is for you. Our heart is for the Lord. And that's the evidence that our ministry is of Christ, not the fact that we are rich and successful, um, which is kind of the way they were thinking. People were questioning, like, Paul is suffering too much. And if he was really of God, he wouldn't be suffering as much. Is kind of what people thought. Uh, he says, 13... For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So at first this verse confused me. And I, but I think the way it makes sense is um, some of the things he did didn't make sense to the Corinthians. So they'd be like, you're out of your mind. Why are you doing that? And so I think he's saying here, even if you don't get it, like you know that our motive is that we're doing this all for God. And even if you don't understand how this helps you or if this was for your good, and if we seem crazy to you, at least trust that our motives are, this is for God. We're seeking to please and serve him in everything. And if we seem in our right mind um, to you, great, it's for you. We're seeking to serve you in it. So that's how I take that. For the love of Christ compels us. That is Christ's love for this world. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. So if you are up to date on debates between Calvinists, Arminians, whatever, this verse is a very interesting one and very important. So we should we probably just spend a bit of time on it. Uh, it says, if one died for all, then all died. So the one being Christ died for all, then all died. So in what sense, what does it mean here that Christ died for all? This can be taken, people take this three different ways. So the Arminian, um, actually, what never mind. Um, the Arminian would take this, which is a different way of understanding salvation than we have in the Reformed tradition. Understands this word all here is referring to every individual person without exception. So Christ died for all. Uh, some Calvinists interpret the all there as Christ died for all the elect. And those who are more discerning, and I'll show my bias here, <laughs> would understand the all here as referring to Christ died for all 
sorts and groups and peoples. So because of the thing in the Old Testament, people thought salvation was just for Israel. And so he's saying, no, Christ died for all, not just for Jews, but for Jews and for Gentiles. Uh, that's how I would understand that. Um, but whatever the case, and this is something commentators point out here, the word all here doesn't actually tell us the right interpretation in any way. Because this word all in Greek can be used in tons of different ways. It can refer to a smaller group than every individual. It can, it's used pretty wide. So what, however we take this has to be interpreted based on our understanding from the rest of scripture. This word all isn't going to do the work for us. Does that make sense? Well, it's just kind of your last two categories would fit for all the elect, but all the elect who are from every tribe and nation. Right, like there could so be overlap yeah, even. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, one died for all, then all died. Uh, this idea of all died, I don't think this is saying that when Christ died for everybody, then all died. I think what this is saying is that if Christ needed to die for all people, then it means that at some point everyone was dead. So I think this is actually going back all the way to Adam, that um, if Christ had to die for all, then all died in Adam, because all need Christ's redemption. Um, so everyone, because Christ, they need Christ to die for them, they're all already dead. They died in Adam um, in their human nature. Does that make sense? You could also take it as, like all the elect have died in Christ to the flesh, crucified with Christ. Yes, though I think we need... To make the alls match there. Yeah, well, if it is it all as, as in the elect. Yeah. Yeah, or, or even, yeah, I guess all will die, because I guess it's, um, we would think of it being as applied to people in the present, right? So it's like, we'd say, like, we died to sin when we were saved, not um, when Christ died. But there was also, there was a controversy on this issue, and even, this is an inter-reformed controversy, um, over this doctrine that was called eternal justification. And what this taught was that um, all the elect were justified in Christ in eternity past. And then what happens when you're saved in time is a coming to accept and acknowledge the justification you already have. Which this was held by people like John Gill, a well-known Baptist commentator, and some other Reformed people. Uh, it's a... Yes. So the doctrine of eternal justification, uh, as defined and described by those like John Gill, was that because God had this intention to save everyone from eternity past, in Christ, he already sees the elect in him and sees them as righteous in his sight. And so that salvation has already occurred. And so when we say that we then get saved, what they would say is happening is you're not actually being justified but you're accepting and acknowledging the justification you already have. I find that very prominent even in uh, Reformed circles today. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I, I have men who in my classes would say, but you were always saved, you, you, mm. but you're just coming to realize it. And I, I go, well, um, so I like to hear the rest of it. You're elect from before the foundations of the earth. Yeah, I mean, right. so they say, well, you just didn't know it. Yeah. So yeah. that's what you're describing as... Uh... Yeah, it's generally considered an, an aberrant and minority view that's 
not heretical, but um, in error would be the general Reformed consensus. That's an erroneous view. And we would say... We, w- we would say that justification occurs when you are saved and your sins are forgiven and you are imputed Christ's righteousness. We wouldn't all say that. <laughs> we, we wouldn't. Uh, I would say we in the OPC doctrinally believe that justification occurs in time, um, in salvation. Um, and there was, there was debates in this Reformed circles and most of the Reformed... Um, or the Reformed Orthodox theologians of our confessional era, um, they argued against the eternal justification people, which was really just two or three prominent people, but they were never officially like condemned or excommunicated or anything. So that stream has continued, but it's in our Reformed tradition, it's a, it's a minority. But it's, uh, we would say, it's probably, you would say it's an allowable Reformed position, it's just a less common Reformed position. So, eternal justification. If you're interested in that topic, you should read Oliver Crisp. Oliver D. Crisp is the expert on these sorts of things. Um, Verse 15, we'll probably end with this. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Um, I just want to end with this idea that this beautiful goal that Christ died to make a way for people to live for him. And when we think of the answer to this question, you're saved from what? We often just think saved from sin. But salvation is more holistic than that. We're saved from our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we are saved from sin in that we're saved from the effects of our sinful flesh. We're also saved from Satan, as in being in service. And like Jesus says in John 8, you're children of the devil. And the one that's in view here is we're saved from the world. And I think what this salvation is that we are saved from the vanity of serving the worldly idols that everyone else chases after. All those vain hopes and dreams that people in this world live for, um, which is really a way of living for self, we're saved from that vain chasing, that hamster wheel of the unattainable, and we're saved to live for God, the one who died for us and was raised. And this is really the essence of conversion. You think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, I rejoice how you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. And this is the beauty of what God's done for us, that we've turned from idols, from serving ourselves to serve God. So let's serve God this week and not self. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've prepared a place for us in heaven um, to be with you. And that we have such a joy and rejoicing that we get to be with you for all eternity. But we ask that we will experience your presence now, even though sometimes it's dim and we see it's just by faith, Lord. Would you grant us the beauty of your presence among us in our worship, even this evening, in our week, that we would know that you are with us always, that we would see the reconciliation that's been brought between us and God, and that we would walk as your friends and walk as your children, knowing that you delight in your people, but still we get the joy of entering in to a life of good works and service to you, Lord. Help us to do that. Keep us from sin and help us to rejoice in our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, sir. If the cup model is